leave a message to be on the show. That's right, you can. If you go to the show's description on whatever platform you're listening to this on, mind you, it does host on many platforms. This SAS podcast, Starseeds Angels Savannah Syndrome, hosts on many platforms, as most podcasts do these days. Well, if you look in the description for the show, you'll find a link to message us. You can leave a, leave a audio recording for the show and be on air, not live, but you can ask a question or leave a statement. Heck, this show is explicit and it's rated explicit. So you can even swear. You can swear at me if you want. And roast me. And that's perfectly fine. I welcome anybody to say anything that they want. And that's freedom of speech. How it should be. I I don't know if there's a time limit on the audio recording that you're allowed to uh, record with. But uh, try to keep it a little bit short I'd say at least under like half an hour if that's okay with you but yes please do message and be on the show you can do so anonymously perfectly fine Mr. Chairman uh, thank you uh, for having this hearing uh, we've heard from a lot of witnesses from you today and others previously about the very important potential of 5G technology. It promises to bring us a new era of connectivity with internet speeds as much as five times faster than what we have today with much lower latency, and that's all a good thing. But uh, 5G, as you well know, also uses higher frequency waves that don't travel as far and will rely on a network of hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of small cell sites. And the question then is, are there any health implications, any public safety implications to those additional sites that are likely to be located close to homes, schools, workplaces, and closer and closer to the ground, correct? Correct, Senator, yes. So in December of 2018, I sent a letter to FCC Commissioner Carr asking him to cite for me recent scientific studies demonstrating the safety of this technology. What research has been done? Where has it been published and compiled? He has essentially failed to do so, and just echoed the general statements of the FDA, which shares regulatory responsibility for cell phones with the FCC. If you go to the FDA website, pretty unsatisfactory. Uh, There basically uh, is a cursory and superficial citation to existing scientific data saying, Quote, the FDA has urged the cell phone industry to take a number of steps 
including support additional research on possible biological effects of radiofrequency fields for the type of signal emitted by cell phones. Uh, I believe that Americans deserve to know what the health effects are, not to prejudge what scientific studies may show, and uh, they deserve also a commitment to do the research on outstanding questions. So my question for, for you, particularly Mr. Gillen and Mr. Perry, um, how much money has the industry committed to supporting additional independent research? I stress independent research. Is that independent research ongoing? Has any been completed? Where can consumers look for it? Um, and we're talking about research on the biological effects of this new technology. Thank you, Senator. I, I think, uh, thank you for your focus on the issue. Uh, safety is paramount, and as you alluded to, we rely on the expert agencies. We rely on the findings of the FDA and others as to the requirements to keep all of us safe. Uh, there are no industry back studies, to my knowledge right now. Happy to visit with you as to what uh, opportunities you think there needs to be more studies, and we're always for more science. We also rely on what the scientists tell us. So essentially, the answer to my question, how much money? Zero. Uh, I can certainly follow up with you, Senator. To my knowledge, there's no active studies being backed by industry today. Anybody else know of industry commitments to, to back research, fund it, support it, to ascertain scientifically the health effects? Senator, I'm not aware uh, either, but uh, I do know that with small cells especially, you're going to have lower power levels. And, of course, as, as from a carrier perspective, you want to be able to manage interference so that that interference is the lowest uh, interference possible. So I would, I would think that some of those studies or some of that information could be utilized in, um, in looking at the health consequences, but no, I'm not aware of any. So there really is no research ongoing. We're kind of flying blind here so far as health and safety is concerned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. So the United States took the only responsible course. We withdrew from the Human Rights Council, and we will not return until real reform is enacted. For similar reasons, the United States will provide no support and recognition to the International Criminal Court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. The ICC claims near-universal jurisdiction over the citizens of every country, violating all principles of justice, fairness, and due process. We will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable, global bureaucracy. America is governed by Americans. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Around the world, responsible nations must defend against threats to sovereignty, not just from global government, but also from other new forms of coercion and domination. 
In America, we believe strongly in energy security for ourselves and for our allies. The Absurdity of COVID Cases by Jeff Deist, an audio Mises Wire narrated by Michael Stack. Today's headlines announced Donald and Melania Trump tested positive for COVID-19. Another claims 19,000 Amazon workers got COVID-19 on the job. Both of these pseudo-stories are sure to ignite another absurd media frenzy. As always, the story keeps changing. Remember ventilators, flatten the curve, the next two weeks are crucial, and so on. Remember Nancy Pelosi in Chinatown back in February urging everyone to visit? Remember Fauci dismissing masks as useless? Why should we believe anything the political-slash-media complex tells us now? So what do these headlines really mean? What exactly is a COVID case? Since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, most U.S. media outlets have been exceedingly credulous and complicit in their reporting. Journalists almost uniformly promote what we can call the pro-lockdown narrative, which is to wildly exaggerate the risks from COVID-19 to serve a political agenda. They may be motivated to hurt Trump politically, to promote a more socialist new normal, or simply to drive more clicks and views. Bad news sells, but the bias is clear and undeniable. This explains why media outlets use the terms case and infection so loosely, to the point of actively misinforming the public. All of the endless talk about testing, testing, testing served to obscure two important facts. First, the tests themselves are almost laughably unreliable in producing both false positives and negatives. And what is the point? Are we going to test people again and again every time they go out to the grocery or bump into a neighbor? Second, detecting virus particles or droplets in a human's respiratory tract tells us very little. It certainly does not tell us they are sick or transmitting sickness to anyone. Take a perfectly healthy person with no particular symptoms and swab the inside of their nose. If the culture shows the presence of Staphylococcus aureus, do we insist they have a staph infection? When someone drives to work without incident or accident, do we create statistics about their exposure to traffic? A virus is not a disease. Only a very small percentage of those exposed to the virus itself show any kind of acute respiratory symptoms, or what we can call coronavirus disease. The only meaningful statistics show the incidence of serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. The single most important statistic among these is the infection fatality rate, or IFR. Data collected through July shows that the IFR for those under age 45 is actually lower than that of the common flu. The COVID-19 IFR rises for those over 50, but it is hardly a death sentence. And the data does not segregate those with pre-existing health issues caused by obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. If we could see data only for reasonably healthy people under 50, the numbers would be even more reassuring. Mild or asymptomatic COVID cases are effectively meaningless. 
The world is full of bacteria and viruses, and sometimes they make us a bit sick for a few days. There are millions of them in the world all around us, on our skin, in our nose and respiratory tract, in our organs. We are meant to live with them, which is why we all have immune systems designed to help us coexist and adapt to ever-changing organisms. We develop antibodies naturally, or we attempt to stimulate them through vaccines. But ultimately, our own immune systems have to deal with COVID-19. The virus will always be out there waiting on the other side of any lockdown or mask, so we might as well get on with it. From day one, the focus should have been on boosting immunity through exercise, fresh air, sunlight, proper dietary supplementation, and the promotion of general well-being. Instead, our politicians, bureaucrats, and media insisted on business lockdowns, school closures, distancing, isolation, masks, and the mirage of a fast, effective vaccine. As with almost everything in life, state intervention made the situation worse. We can only hope many governors are removed from office either by impeachment or at the next election. Several, including Andrew Cuomo in New York and Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, should face criminal charges for their lawless edicts. There is no due process exception for public health. Lockdowns were never justified either in terms of the COVID-19 risk or the staggering economic trade-offs which will be felt for decades. They certainly are not justified now, given seven months of additional data showing that the transmission and lethality of COVID-19 are not particularly worse than previous SARS, swine flu, or Ebola pandemics. We still don't know how many of the reported 200,000 U.S. COVID-19 deaths were actually caused by the SARS-CoV-2 respiratory disease, or simply reflect people who died of other causes after exposure to COVID-19. We do know that the harms caused by the lockdowns far outweigh the harms posed by the COVID-19 virus. We have had nearly eight months of life and liberty stolen from us by politicians and their hysteria-promoting accomplices in media. How much more will we accept? For more content like this, visit Mises.org. Next speaker is, and we had things taken out of order a little bit, but uh, Dr. James Nuschenwander. Nuschenwander? I think I threw in uh, a little bit of a German pronunciation at the end there, as my wife would do, being from Germany originally. Um, but she would tell me I totally messed it up in that regard also. So, uh, doctor, thank you. He, uh, he founded uh, Bioenergy Medical Center, a multidisciplinary integrative medical practice located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he traveled from to be with us today. He's lectured nationally and internationally on a broad range of topics, including integrative approaches to immune system imbalances, disorders, detoxification, treatment of complex chronic illness, and the integrative medicine treatment of autism, ADHD, and allergies. Thank you, doctor, for being with us today. Thank you, Representative Metcalf. So you might want to ask yourself, what is a physician from Michigan doing in this beautiful Capitol building in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? And the answer is very simple. I'm here to support medical freedom 
and put an end to medical tyranny. So Representative Metcalf has introduced a bill that will enshrine your right to determine what is injected into your body and the bodies of your children. It'll stop the practice of medical offices discharging you simply because you choose not to vaccinate yourself or vaccinate your children. It'll prevent employers from tying your employment to your vaccine status. And most importantly, most people don't understand this, it'll stop the practice of bribing physicians with bonuses for vaccinating their patients and penalizing them for choosing not to. In a word, this is the kind of bill we need as a law, not just in Pennsylvania, but in every state in this country. And that is why I'm here today. I have watched our vaccine program go from 12 shots for about eight diseases in the early 80s when my children were young, to over 54 shots for 16 diseases today. At the same time, I've watched the health of our children decline to the point where over 50% of them are going to develop some type of chronic medical condition. I've also watched as they've established an adult vaccine schedule. Why? Because many adults are susceptible to these childhood illnesses because they've trained, they have exchanged the lifelong immunity of a natural infection with the false temporary immunity of a vaccine. And I've watched the health of America in general go from the top of the industrialized world in the 60s to the very bottom. And this is what has dragged me kicking and screaming into this world of vaccine safety and medical freedoms. But we got a pandemic on our hands. And that pandemic has opened the door and allowed people to view firsthand the process of getting a vaccine approved. It's kind of like having a front row seat to making the sausage. It hasn't been pretty. The AstraZeneca trial already has been postponed twice, once for a case of multiple sclerosis and one for a case of transverse myelitis. Just to let you know, that's like a polio-type paralysis caused by an injury to the spinal cord from inflammation. Now, despite the fact that the AstraZeneca Safety Committee determined that the MS was from an underlying condition and the transverse myelitis was not from the vaccine, the FDA has kept that trial on hold in the United States. Johnson & Johnson just last week had to pause their trial because of a severe mystery illness in one of their participants. Now remember, each one of these vaccine companies signed on to a pledge that said they would be completely transparent when they did these trials. They would hide nothing from the public to engender trust in the quality and safety of the product that they're making. Despite that, we don't know what that underlying condition was that determined the MS and whether that's going to be a contraindication to that vaccine. And we have no idea how the safety committee determined the vaccine didn't cause transverse myelitis. And just to let you know, this is extremely rare. Transverse myelitis is caused by viruses like polio, but it is a well-known vaccine side effect. In the case of the Johnson & Johnson case, we don't even know what that disease was. You know, transparency, give me a break. And now people are waking up to the fact that this vaccine might be mandated and what about the long-term safety effects? How can you determine long-term safety in a vaccine that has taken months to develop? But for those of us that have been advocating for vaccine safety and for medical freedom for years, none of this stuff is a surprise. I personally have read, believe it or not, I did, I have read the applications that the vaccine manufacturers put in the FDA to get these vaccines approved. And if you look at the safety section of those applications, it's a joke. 
It's full of what I call junk science. So you don't have to look any further than the vaccine control group for an example of junk science. You know, a control group in a medical trial is supposed to allow you to determine what side effects are caused by your intervention versus what side effects would have just happened randomly. So typically a control group is an inert substance. It's a sugar pill or it's a saline injection. But right now, no vaccine in our current schedule, none of them, has been um, put through a prospective inert placebo-controlled trial prior to their approval by the FDA. None of them. They're all compared to other vaccines or they're compared to vaccine ingredients. We have drug trials. This would never uh, suffice in a drug trial. The gold standard is to compare a drug to an inert placebo or to another drug that has been compared to an inert placebo. That's the gold standard. But vaccines don't have to reach that standard. They're in the special magical category called biologics. So biologics are not subjected to the same safety trials that any drug is. And you all need to know that. They are not subjected to the same safety trials as any drug out there. So let me give you a couple examples of this junk science. The first is the MMR vaccine. So GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, has an MMR vaccine that they use in Europe. They're trying to get it approved in the United States. So they underwent a trial, large trial, in which they published a paper earlier this year, and they said, no safety concerns. But when you look at the safety data, and by the way, you can't find it in the paper, you have to go to a supplement at a different site, but when you look at the safety data, 6% of these healthy 12-month-old babies developed a grade three systemic adverse event. This is the worst kind of side effect, 6%. 10% ended up in an emergency room within six weeks, and 3.5% of these healthy babies developed a new chronic medical disease within six months of vaccination. But no safety concerns. Why? Because the control group had exactly the same numbers. Was that control group a saline injection? No. That control group was the current MMR2 vaccine made by Merck that is in current use today. So how did they determine safety? They took an MMR vaccine, they compared it to another MMR vaccine to determine MMR vaccines are safe. That's like taking a pack of Marlboros, comparing it to a pack of, of camels, seeing the lung cancer rate between both and determining cigarettes don't cause cancer. It's junk science. And you could say, hey, Dr. Neuentreiter, come on, the MMR we're in use today has been put through safety trials. It has never been compared to an inert placebo control ever. So now we know 3.5% of our children develop a chronic medical condition from the MMR vaccine. And the number one thing they develop, we already heard about, is eczema. This is not a skin condition. This is an immune system dysfunction. But let me give you a second example, Vaxalis. So Vaxalis is this new six-in-one shot approved by the FDA last year. Again, no safety concerns. You look at their data, 90% of the children that got this injection developed a systemic adverse event. And 16% of those systemic adverse events were grade three. So this is not a one in a million reaction. This is 16% of these kids getting this injection developed a grade three serious adverse event. But no safety concerns, why? Same as a control group. What's our control group here? Saline, give me a break. The control group here is Penticel, which is a five-in-one shot, and hepatitis B. So they compared six vaccines in one shot to six vaccines in two shots to determine that six vaccines was safe. And again, 
none of those six vaccines has been compared to an inert placebo-controlled trial. This is junk science, my friends, junk science. So in order to try and put, get to the bottom of all this, Congress has multiple times asked the Institute of Medicine to look at vaccine and vaccine injury pairs to determine, does this cause that? And multiple times, the Institute of Medicine come back and said, there's not enough evidence for most of these pairs. We don't know. So finally, in 2011, Congress tasked the Institute of Medicine to determine what is the safety of our entire vaccine schedule? Are we better off vaccinating our children with the schedule or not? And in a paper published in 2012, Institute of Medicine came back and said, there is no evidence, zero papers, on what is the outcome of a vaccinated versus an unvaccinated group. The studies hadn't been done. They even chided the CDC for not doing these studies and declaring the whole schedule to be safe. So in response, the CDC came up with a committee of experts to determine could such a study be done using existing databases like the Vaccine Safety Data Link. That report was published in 2015 where they said, yes, indeed, we can do these studies. And they even gave a specific example of how to use the VSD to determine if the vaccine schedule increased your risk of asthma. Have those studies been done? No. It's been five years the CDC hasn't done a single study. It would be so straightforward and simple for them to do these studies, and they refuse to do it. Why is that? I'll leave that up to you guys to figure out. People like me, we don't have access to these databases. There's no way we can do these studies. There have been two small studies comparing vaccinated to completely unvaccinated populations since that time, and both of those studies showed that vaccinated children are much sicker, much more likely to have allergies, asthma, eczema, ADHD, and yes, autism. 230 years ago, our founders wrote a constitution to create this nation, and it didn't get through the colonies. Why? Because it didn't guarantee many of the basic rights for which they were fighting. They had to add the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to that Constitution, in order to get it through the colonies and create our nation. That Bill of Rights is under attack right now. You look at freedom of speech. How many of us have been censored on all the social media platforms out there? How about freedom of press? That's being dictated by the advertising dollars that pay for these television programs and the news programs. There's no freedom of press. And then we have states' legislators that want to chip away at this Bill of Rights by vaccine mandates and removing exemptions. But we got a big one looming on the horizon here. That COVID vaccine is coming. And it's going to come without any knowledge of long-term side effects. We won't know your risk of developing an autoimmune disorder, your risk of infertility, your risk of cancer. It's never been studied. We won't know by the time this thing is approved. And yet, many of us believe that these will be mandated. It's the only way you're going to be able to do this. And for what? For a disease that has an overall infection mortality rate of 0.26%? a mortality rate in healthy people of essentially zero, you got to go a whole bunch of zeros before you get any number less than that. It's maybe one in 10,000, one in 20,000. That's 0.01%, 0.005%. I mean, the numbers are mind-boggling, and we're going to mandate this. It's time to side with people like Representative Metcalf to put these kinds of laws forward that enshrine our medical freedoms and put an end to this medical tyranny. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. We really appreciate you making the trip from Michigan today.
to share with us your, your expertise and your passion. Thank you so much. Our uh, third expert that uh, traveled from not New York or Michigan, but right here from the Pittsburgh area here in Pennsylvania, and has been with us before. We appreciate him coming back to the Capitol today to share his expertise. Dr. Lyons Weiler is a research scientist, author, and president and CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. Thank you, doctor, for coming. Thank you. Representative Metcalf, I want to thank the media for being here and thank everyone online for sharing this across all social platforms. Uh, I'm an objective research scientist and I have two main points that I want to drive home. The first one is the number 21%. I want you to remember that number and write it down. It's a very, very important number to you if you're an American citizen. The second thing that, and I'll get to that in a minute, the second thing that I want to say is I'm not here in support of any particular bill. I run a not-for-profit, and I can't say yay or nay on my opinion. What my personal opinion is is muted, and I don't mind that, but I can condemn the politicization of your health, the politicization and the commoditization of the American citizen's health, Pennsylvania citizen's health, is not a commodity. It is neither a monetary commodity, nor is it a political commodity. And shame on you if you have changed your position or held on to a position in the light of evidence from data from studies that tell you that your position is wrong simply because you disagree with President Trump. Shame on you. You're hurting people. You're hurting society. You're destroying businesses. Shame on you. Now that I got that out, I can talk about some science. Okay. Historically, coronaviruses uh, vaccines for coronaviruses have had a terrible safety record. Uh, there is a condition known as disease enhancement due to pathogenic priming. And this was discovered in vaccinated animals in past vaccine safety studies when they did conduct vaccine safety studies on animals on coronavirus vaccines, where vaccinated animals got more serious disease after being vaccinated and then when they acquired an infection from the wild-type vaccine more of animals got serious infections, serious conditions, and more animals died. In my peer-reviewed research paid for the citizens of the United States of America through donations to IPAC, prior to the development of any COVID vaccines, I found that all but one of the proteins in the SARS-CoV-2 virus have what we call unsafe epitopes, right? Which are parts of proteins that are capable of causing immune conditions, autoimmune conditions, and immune responses against proteins in our own body. This is peer-reviewed research, and I'll be happy to provide the press with reference after this. About a third of the proteins that might be targeted by autoimmune conditions by SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins, either through infection or injection, target the immune system. But from the start, it looks like this virus has evolved the ability to attack our immune system as part of its disease-causing capacity. This pathogenic priming, I, pre I predicted in my study which parts of the human body would likely be most affected by pathogenic priming. And now studies by medical physicians, by medical teams around the world are confirming my predictions. This is not simply a respiratory virus with, with respiratory uh, symptoms. This affects many tissues across the body, and there's some grave concern if you're going to get infected. 
But where's the grave concern if you're going to be injected with these same proteins? Not a single, to my knowledge, not a single vaccine manufacturer took heed of my warning to remove those unsafe epitopes from the vaccines before they formulated their vaccines. In spite of being emailed my study with a plea to please consider taking out those unsafe epitopes. Your body has 500,000 pe peptides throughout your life. The coronavirus has something like 28 proteins. What's the probability that there's going to be many proteins that match at small segments of immunogenic epitopes? Very high. We now have results from front-runner vaccines from these hybrid trials where they skipped over the animals' trials. FDA, in it absolutely ignoring safety margin in a stunning decision, decided to allow uh, Moderna and other vaccine manufacturers to skip the most important step in vaccine safety for coronavirus, which is the animal trials, to see if there's pathogenic priming, to see if this particular vaccine or that particular vaccine might cause serious problems through pathogenic priming. I, it's, un, it's, un, it, it's unbelievable that the FDA made this decision, and you know, we, we made this specific recommendation that they do that in, this, in my study that, that I published. All right. Now what they're doing is they, they even said, well, we don't have to do phase one human trials and phase two human trials separate. We're going to combine them together because this is such a horrible epidemic. We need to get the science done fast. They're missing out on another opportunity to find safety signals, but they found them anyway. At the beginning of this time period uh, where, where I'm speaking, I said to remember the percentage 21%. The only single data point, the datum that we have on what percentage of patients exposed human patients exposed to a coronavirus vaccine have had serious adverse events is from the Moderna trial and that number is 21 percent. 21 percent of people are having serious adverse events from this vaccine in that trial. The other ones haven't published their data yet to the point where we can understand that. Like, uh, like Dr. New said, they're supposed to be transparent. But you know, I'm, I'm really upset as a professional scientist and as a citizen that our public health officials have not giving, given you the good word. The good word that is now absolutely mundane routine medical care to take care of a patient with coronavirus. It is absolutely known that you should not put them on the full ventilator uh, pressure. That's what killed most people in New York City. It is absolutely known that corticosteroids now take care of the autoimmune-like conditions that people are experiencing that I predicted in my study. So those high incidences of autoimmunity from a treatment, not a vaccine, a treatment, a medical treatment, they're now routinely used across the United States. It's also known how to treat the uh, incidental coagulopathy, which only can be thought about as a, an outcome uh, of something wrong with the, with the viral proteins being in the body. And just this morning I read in the journal The Lancet, their position is that antivirals are generally effective against coronavirus, COVID-19. The public needs to understand that tens of thousands and soon hundreds of thousands of medical doctors around the world are going to join me and others in condemning the politicization of coronavirus and public health in general, including vaccines. We have to understand that you know, we had came to get, we're going to come together and have come together with joint resolutions uh, about this political state to stand down on politicization of public health. Stand down on it, even if you're a public health official. 
right? You need to be a scientist first and a qualified one at that to conduct public health and you can't just repeat, regurgitate what the CDC has to say. All right, so now we have, up, we have really good news. Why do we not hear good news on treatments from our public health officials? Shame on them. They're keeping people in fear, intentionally. Why? It's fair enough to speculate that perhaps after the election we will see a disappearance of their concern over coronavirus. So those, of, those people who would like to add uh, coronavirus vaccine mandates to our society's response have to, have to understand a few things. First of all, it's a disproportionate response given the rate of mortality. If you're not over 70 years old, you have less of a chance of dying of coronavirus than you do from influenza, thank goodness. Uh, however, if you want to mandate coronavirus vaccines, understand that you're going to probably, if you're a medical physician, hear me well, if you want to reject 21% of your patients, and that's a low number, that's a lowball number, if you want to kick 21% of your patients out of your practice, be my guest, those patients are probably better off without you. So the estimates of coverage that are required to be needed to protect the population from vaccine herd immunity are that, uh, and this comes from Paul Off at the Children's Hospital over in Philadelphia, uh, efficacy rates as high as 50% and coverage rates as high as 75%. The Pew report from the other day, a poll says that 51% of the population do not want this, this vaccine. They won't take it. Not just that they won't take, be the first to line up, they won't take it. How are we going to get to 75% with only 51%? Well, we need a much more efficacious coronavirus vaccine. It is, not, it is imperative that we do not discount prior immunity in the population from prior exposure to coronavirus-like viruses or to coronavirus itself. And if you look at the infection case, the infection fatality rate, not the, not the case fatality rate where you get a diagnosis, you take the symptomatics and the asymptomatics and put it together, the statistic that was published in May was less than influenza. The press has learned that Yes, we're going to have a problem with lung-sustained antibodies, but we've known that for coronaviruses from 1990. It's not new. The press has reported that. But the press now, and thank you for doing this, has reported that we have memory B cells and memory T cells in response to coronavirus, so our bodies will remember how to be uh, immune to these coronaviruses without having to carry around antibodies to everything we've ever been exposed of, expressing those proteins in our body all the time. That would be metabolically unsustainable. It's not how human bodies work. It's not how mammalian bodies work. So this mystery of public health officials not working to reduce concern can only be seen as political. And uh, please join me in condemning that. Our reaction to coronavirus has already been worse than the virus itself. A terrorist could never succeed as well at shutting down businesses with a bomb in the United States as we have by this ridiculous, inaccurate testing. Dr. Singhang Lee from Milford, Connecticut published a study that showed that the reference samples that are used to validate the COVID-19 test, 30% were false positives. When he sequenced the PCR product, 40% were false negatives. What are we doing with PCR testing? And if you test everyone in a population with a CT scan, you're gonna find cancers in everyone and you're gonna do biopsies on everyone at, at a rate where you're going to end up doing a lot of harm. Every person that has a false positive rate, when the infection rates are low, and there's something like 2% active infection, maybe, maximum, per year with coronavirus across the United States right now, 
Every, we're going to have far more false positives, even if the false positive rate is just 1%. What does that lead to? It leads to contact tracing with those 14 people that you saw in the mall the other day. You're shutting down those 14 businesses. Bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb, shutting down our economy. That's cruel. And then on top of it, we're bringing quaternary ammonium compounds into schools. I'm going to spell a name for you. H-R-U-B-E-C, Terry Rubick. The H is not pronounced, Terry Rubick. She did studies of these cleaners that we're bringing into the schools and we're spraying all over the schools every day or every week to fight coronavirus. She found in mice neural tube defects to the rate of 15% of the pups and a reduction in the reproductive capacity of both male and female mice of 50% with these that are called quads. Look them up. I just did an Unbreaking Science episode, look at hashtag Unbreaking Science, I interviewed Dr. Rubik yesterday. What are we doing to our children, exposing them to these cleaners that might shut down their reproduction, that might harm their immune systems, that might cause their children for two generations to be less reproductively capable, for two generations to have neural tube defects. Look up and think about what we're doing. Our society is messed up because we don't think about attendant consequences and we base our for-profit medical system on the externalization of costs on people like these families. She bears the cost. You all bear the cost. Let's bring liability back to the vaccine program in the United States. And the last thing I want to say, that the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program itself, I believe, is corrupt. I was an expert in that program, and I quit that program after a special master attempted to bribe me to change my testimony for payment. And you put that on the record. On top of it, the probability of anybody getting, uh, you, you have no chance in the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program because H, you, you heard earlier, HHS determines which vaccine injuries are real. HHS is the defendant in the case. HHS writes its own ticket to what you can charge it with. It's like me robbing a bank and saying, you can't charge me for taking the 50s. I'm writing the rules in my own courtroom. That, that system is so, so backwards, it's unbelievable. So please, do your own research, look up quats, look up quacks, look up coronavirus, and I want to thank you, Representative Metcalf, for today. That's an incredibly brave, amazing doctor. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, please. And thank you so much for doing this. Okay, my name is Dr. Christiane Northrup. I'm a board certified OBGYN physician trained at Dartmouth Medical School, Tufts New England Medical Center. I'm a former clinical professor of OBGYN at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. I'm the author of three New York Times bestselling books. This COVID vaccine, can mm -hmm. you tell us what we do know about it and what you, from your experience, fear for the people that may take it. Yes, there's never been a vaccine like this. It's an RNA vaccine. It is uh, what's called a trans-infection. It will fundamentally change people's DNA. And what I don't like about it even more than the usual thing about the toxic uh, metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G, uh, this one has the usual um, non-human DNA, like, you know, monkeys, maybe fetal cells, pigs, whatever. And so it begins to make us 
what's called chimers, C-H-I-M-E-R, in, introducing non-human DNA into our bodies. What is worse, though, is that um, there is a patent and work that they've done at MIT to make a dye, and the patent of the dye is called luciferase, and under a light, you'd be able to see who was vaccinated, who wasn't. And the deal is to store your biometric information, because this vaccine will have nanoparticles, nanocrystalline uh, particles that are actually little robots, and they like little antennas. And they will have the ability to take your biometric data, not only your vaccine record, but your breathing, your heart rate, your activities, sexual activities, drugs that you're taking, where you travel, all of that, and then take that data and store it in the cloud. What's even more concerning is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on March 26, 2020, applied for a patent, patent number 060606, to take that biometric data give you a barcode and connect each of us to cryptocurrency so that we would become literally um, slaves to the system. Like everything, it would be the end of privacy, the end of freedom, because who gets the data? Who uses the data and what do they do with it? So this, this patent to connect the vaccinated to cryptocurrency, making all humans a commodity, is extremely concerning, and everyone should be concerned given that this is a virus from which 99.9% .9 of people recover. So I would ask, why do we need anything like this? Because it goes far beyond um, those uh, pandemics of old, smallpox and so on. This is very different. The, the plan here is to vaccinate the entire world, and the narrative that we're being sold is, Things will not go back to normal until everyone is vaccinated. Because until we get almost everybody vaccinated uh, globally, we still won't be fully back to normal. Hello, I am Reiner Fulmich, and I have been admitted to the bar in Germany and in California for 26 years. I have been practicing law primarily as a trial lawyer against fraudulent corporations such as Deutsche Bank, formerly one of the world's largest and most respected banks, today one of the most toxic criminal organizations in the world. VW, one of the world's largest and most respected car manufacturers, today notorious for its giant diesel fraud. And Kühne & Nagel, the world's largest shipping company, we're suing them in a multi-million dollar bribery case. I'm also one of four members of the German Corona Investigative Committee. Since July 10th, 2020, this committee has been listening to a large number of international scientists and experts' testimony to find answers to questions about the corona crisis, which more and more people worldwide are asking. All the above-mentioned cases of corruption and fraud committed by the German corporations pale in comparison in view of the extent of the damage that the corona crisis has caused and continues to cause. This corona crisis, according to all we know today, must be renamed a corona scandal, and those responsible for it must be criminally prosecuted and sued for civil damages. 
on a political level, everything must be done to make sure that no one will ever again be in a position of such power as to be able to defraud humanity or to attempt to manipulate us with their corrupt agendas. And for this reason, I will now explain to you how and where an international network of lawyers will argue this biggest tort case ever, the corona fraud scandal, which has meanwhile unfolded into probably the greatest crime against humanity ever committed. Crimes against humanity were first defined in connection with the Nuremberg trials, after World War II that is, when they dealt with the main war criminals of the Third Reich. Crimes against humanity are today regulated in Section 7 of the International Criminal Code. The three major questions to be answered in the context of a judicial approach to the corona scandal are, one, is there a corona pandemic or is there only a PCR test pandemic? Specifically, does a positive PCR test result mean that the person tested is infected with COVID-19 or does it mean absolutely nothing in connection with the COVID-19 infection? Two, do the so-called anti-corona measures, such as the lockdown, mandatory face masks, social distancing, um, and quarantine regulations serve to protect the world's population from corona? Or do these measures serve only to make people panic so that they believe without asking any questions that their lives are in danger, so that in the end, the pharmaceutical and tech industries can generate huge profits from the sale of PCR tests, antigen and antibody tests and vaccines, as well as the harvesting of our genetic fingerprints. And three, is it true that the German government was massively lobbied, more so than any other country, by the chief protagonists of this so-called corona pandemic, Mr. Drosden, virologist at Charité Hospital in Berlin, Mr. Wheeler, veterinarian and head of the German equivalent of the CDC, the RKI, and Mr. Tedros, head of the World Health Organization, or WHO, because of Germany is known as a particularly disciplined country and was therefore to become a role model for the rest of the world for its strict and, of course, successful adherence to the corona measures. Answers to these three questions are urgently needed because the allegedly new and highly dangerous coronavirus has not caused any excess mortality anywhere in the world and certainly not here in Germany. But the anti-corona measures, whose only basis are the PCR test results, which are in turn all based on the German Drosten test, have, in the meantime, caused the loss of innumerable human lives and have destroyed the economic existence of countless companies and individuals worldwide. In Australia, for example, people are thrown into prison if they do not wear a mask or do not wear it properly as deemed by the authorities. And in the Philippines, people who do not wear a mask or do not wear it properly in this sense are getting shot in the head. Let me first give you a summary of the facts that they present as they present themselves today. The most important thing in a lawsuit is to establish the facts, that is, to find out what actually happened. That, that is because the application of the law always depends on the facts at issue. If I want to pro uh, prosecute someone for fraud, I cannot do that by presenting the facts of a car accident. So what happened here regarding the alleged corona pandemic? The facts laid out below are to a large extent the result of the work of the Co Corona Investigative Committee. This committee was founded on July 10th by four lawyers in order to determine, through hearing expert testimony of international scientists and other experts, one, how dangerous is the virus really? Two, what is the significance of a post-positive PCR test? 
Three, what collateral damage has been caused by the corona measures, both res with respect to the world's population's health and with, with respect to the world's economy? Let me start with a background, a little bit of background information. What happened in May 2019 and then in early 2020, and what happened 12 years earlier with the swine flu, which many of you may have forgotten about? In May of 2019, the stronger of the two parties which governed Germany in a grand coalition, the CDU, held a Congress on Global Health, apparently at the instigation of important players from the pharmaceutical industry and the tech industry. At this Congress, the usual suspects, you might say, gave their speeches. Angela Merkel was there and the German Secretary of Health, Jens Spahn. But some other people whom one would not necessarily expect to be present at such a gathering were also there. Professor Drosten, virologist from the Charité Hospital in Berlin, Professor Wheeler, veterinarian and head of the RKI, the uh, German equivalent of the CDC, as well as Mr. Tedros, philosopher and head of the World Health Organization, WHO. They all gave speeches there. Also present and giving speeches were the chief lobbyists of the world's two largest health funds, namely the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. Less than a year later, these very people called the shots in the proclamation of the worldwide corona pandemic, made sure that mass PCR tests were used to prove mass infections with COVID-19 all over the world, and are now pushing for vaccines to be invented and sold worldwide. These infections, or rather the positive test results that the PCR tests delivered, in turn became the justification for worldwide lockdowns, social distancing, and mandatory face masks. It is important to note at this point that the definition of a pandemic was changed 12 years earlier. Until then, a pandemic was considered to be a disease that spread worldwide and which led to many serious illnesses and deaths. Suddenly, and for reasons never explained, it was supposed to be a worldwide disease only. Many serious illnesses and many deaths were not required anymore to announce a pandemic. Due to this change, the WHO, which is closely intertwined with the global pharmaceutical industry, was able to declare the swine flu pandemic in 2009, with the result that vaccines were produced and sold worldwide on the basis of contracts that have been kept secret until today. These vaccines proved to be completely unnecessary because the swine flu eventually turned out to be a mild flu and never became the horrific plague that the pharmaceutical industry and its affiliated universities kept announcing it would turn into, with millions of deaths certain to happen if people didn't get vaccinated. These vaccines also led to serious health problems. About 700 children in Europe fell incurably ill with narcolepsy and are now forever severely disabled. The vaccines bought with millions of taxpayers' money had to be destroyed with even more taxpayers' money. Already then, during the swine flu, the German virologist Drosten was one of those who stirred up panic in the population, repeating over and over again that the swine flu would claim many hundreds of thousands, even millions of deaths all, all over the world. In the end, it was mainly thanks to Dr. Wolfgang Wodak, and his efforts as a member of the German Bundestag and also a member of the Council of Europe that this hoax was brought to an end before it would lead to even more serious consequences. Fast forward to March of 2020. 
When the German Bundestag announced an epidemic situation of national importance, which is the German equivalent of a pandemic, in March of 2020, and based on this, the lockdown with the suspension of all essential constitutional rights for an unforeseeable time, there was only one single opinion on which the federal government in Germany based its decision. In an outrageous violation of the universally accepted principle audiatret ultra pars, which means that one must also hear the other side, the only person they listened to was Mr. Drusten. That is the very person whose horrific, panic-inducing prognoses had proved to be catastrophically false 12 years earlier. We know this because a whistleblower named David Siba, a member of the Green Party, told us about it. He did so first on August 29th, 2020 in Berlin um, in the context of an event at which Robert F. Kennedy Jr. also took part and at which both men gave speeches. And he did so afterwards in one of the sessions of our Corona Committee. The reason he did this is that he had become increasingly skeptical about the, the official narrative propagated by politicians and the mainstream media. He had therefore undertaken an effort to find out about other scientists' opinions and had found them on the internet. There, he realized that there were a number of highly renowned scientists who held a completely different opinion, which contradicted the horrific prognoses of Mr. Drusden. They assumed, and still do assume, that there was no disease that went beyond the gravity of the seasonal flu that the population had already acquired cross or T-cell immunity against this allegedly new virus, and that there was therefore no reason for any special measures, and certainly not for vaccinations. These scientists include Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University in California, a specialist in statistics and epidemiology, as well as public health, and at the same time the most quoted scientist in the world, Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, and, and also a biophysicist at Stanford University, the German professors Karim Mölling, Susharit Bakti, Knut Witkowski, as well as Stefan Homburg, and now many, many more scientists and doctors worldwide, including Dr. Mike Yeadon. Dr. Mike Yeadon is the former vice president and scientific director of Pfizer, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. I will talk some more about him a little later. At the end of March, beginning of April of 2020, Mr. Siebert turned to the leadership of his Green Party with the uh, knowledge he had accumulated and suggested that they present these other scientific opinions to the public and explain that contrary to Mr. Drosten's doomsday prophecies, there was no reason for the public to panic. Incidentally, Lord Sumption, who served as a judge at the British Supreme Court from 2012 to 2018, had, the, had done the very same thing at the very same time and had come to the very same conclusion, that there was no factual basis for panic and no legal basis for the corona measures. Likewise, the former president of the German Federal Constitutional Court expressed, albeit more cautiously, serious doubts that the corona measures were constitutional. But instead of taking note of these other opinions and discussing them with David Sieber, the Green Party leadership declared that Mr. Drosten's panic messages were good enough for the German Party, uh, for the Green Party. Remember, they're not a member of the ruling co coalition. They're the opposition. Still, that was enough for them, just as it had been good enough for the federal government as a basis for its lockdown decision, they said. They subsequently, the Green Party leadership, called David Sieber a conspiracy theorist without ever having considered the content of his information and then stripped him of his mandates. 
Now let's take a look at the current actual situation regarding the virus's danger, the complete uselessness of PCR tests for the detection of infections, and the lockdowns based on non-existent infections. In the meantime, we know that the healthcare systems were never in danger of becoming overwhelmed by COVID-19. On the contrary, many hospitals remain empty to this day and some are now facing bankruptcy. The hospital ship Comfort, which anchored in New York at the time and could have accommodated a thousand patients, never accommodated more than some 20 patients. Nowhere was there any access, excess mortality. Studies carried out by Professor Ioannidis and others have shown that the mortality of corona is equivalent to that of the seasonal flu. Even the pictures from Bergamo and New York that were used to demonstrate to the world that panic was in order proved to be deliberately misleading. Then, the so-called panic paper was leaked, which was written by the German Department of the Interior. Its classified content shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that, in fact, the population was deliberately driven to panic by politicians and mainstream media. The accompanying irresponsible statements of the head of the RKI, remember the CDC, uh, Mr. Wheeler, who repeatedly and excitedly announced that the corona measures must be followed unconditionally by the population without them asking any question, shows that, the, that he followed the script verbatim. In his public statements, he kept announcing that the situation was very grave and threatening, although the figures compiled by his own institute proved the exact opposite. Among other things, the panic paper calls for children to be made to feel responsible, and I quote, for the painful, tortured death of their parents and grandparents if they do not follow the corona rules. That is, if they do not wash their hands constantly and don't stay away from their grandparents. A word of clarification. In Bergamo, the vast majority of deaths, 94% to be exact, turned out to be the result not of COVID-19, but rather the consequence of the government deciding to transfer sick patients, sick with probably the cold or seasonal flu, from hospitals to nursing homes in order to make room at the hospitals for all the COVID patients who ultimately never arrived. There, at the nursing homes, they then infected old people with a severely weakened immune system, usually as a result of pre-existing medical conditions. In addition, a flu vaccination, which had previously been, been administered, had further weakened the immune systems of the people in the nursing homes. In New York, only some, but by far not all hospitals, were overwhelmed. Many people, most of whom were, again, elderly and had serious pre-existing medical conditions, and most of whom had it not been for the panic-mongering, would have just stayed at home to recover, raced to the hospitals. There, many of them fell victim to healthcare-associated infections or nosocomial infections on the one hand and incidents of malpractice on the other hand, for example, by being put on a respirator rather than receiving oxygen through an oxygen mask. Again, to clarify, COVID-19, this is the current state of affairs, is a dangerous disease, just like the seasonal flu is a dangerous disease. And of course, COVID-19, just like the seasonal flu, may sometimes take, severe take a severe clinical course and will sometimes kill patients. However, as autopsies have shown, which were carried out in Germany in particular by the forensic scientist Professor Klaus Püschel in Hamburg, um, the fatalities he examined had almost all been caused by serious pre-existing conditions and almost all of the people who had died had died at, the very, at a very old age, just like in Italy, meaning they had lived beyond their average life expectancy. 
In this context, the following should also be mentioned. The German RKI, that is, again, the equivalent of the CDC, had initially, strangely enough, recommended that no autopsies be performed. And there are numerous credible reports that doctors and hospitals worldwide had been paid money for declaring a deceased person a victim of COVID-19 rather than writing down the true cause of death on the death certificate, for example, a heart attack or a gunshot wound. Without the autopsies, we would never know that the overwhelming majority of the alleged COVID-19 victims had died of completely different diseases, but not of COVID-19. The assertion that the lockdown was necessary because there were so many different infections with SARS-CoV-2 and because the healthcare systems would be overwhelmed is wrong for three reasons, as we have learned from the hearings we conducted with the uh, Corona Committee and from other data that has become available in the meantime. A. The lockdown was imposed when the virus was already retreating. By the time the lockdown was imposed, the alleged infection rates were already dropping again. B. There's already protection from the virus because of cross or T-cell immunity. Apart from the above-mentioned lockdown being imposed when the uh, infection rates were already dropping, there's also cross or T-cell immunity in the general population against the coronaviruses con con contained in every flu or influenza wave. This is true even if this time around a slightly different strain of the coronavirus was at work. And that is because the body's own immune system remembers every virus it has ever battled in the past. And from this experience, it also recognizes a supposedly new, but still similar strain of the virus from the corona family. Incidentally, that's how the PCR test for the detection of an infection was invented by now infamous Professor Drosten. At the beginning of January of 2020, based on this very basic knowledge, Mr. Drosten developed his PCR test, which supposedly detects an infection with SARS-CoV-2. Without ever having seen the real Wuhan virus from China, only having learned from social media reports that there was something going on in Wuhan, he started tinkering on his computer with what would become his corona PCR test. For this, he used an old SARS virus, hoping it would be sufficiently similar to the allegedly new strain of the coronavirus found in Wuhan. Then he sent the result of his computer tinkering to China to determine whether the victims of the alleged new coronavirus tested positive. They did. And that was enough for the World Health Organization to sound the pandemic alarm and to recommend the worldwide use of the Drosten PCR test for the detection of infections with the virus now called SARS-CoV-2. Drosten's opinion and advice was, this must be emphasized once again, the only source for the German government when it announced the lockdown, as well as the rules for social distancing and the mandatory wearing of masks. And this must also be emphasized once again, Germany apparently became the center of especially massive lobbying by the pharmaceutical and tech industry because the world, with reference to the allegedly disciplined Germans, should do as the Germans do in order to survive the pandemic. C. And this is the most important part of our fact-finding. The PCR test is being used on the basis of false statements not based on scientific facts with respect to infections. In the meantime, we have learned that these PCR tests, contrary to the assertions of Messrs. Drosden, Wheeler, and The Who, do not give any indication of an infection with any virus, let alone an infection with SARS-CoV-2. Note not only are PCR tests expressly not approved for diagnostic purposes, as is correctly noted on leaflets coming with these tests, and as the inventor of the PCR test, Carrie Mollis, 
has repeatedly emphasized. Instead, they're simply incapable of diagnosing any disease. That is, contrary to the assertions of Drossen, Wheeler, and Tahu, which they have been making since the proclamation of the pandemic, a positive PCR test result does not mean that an infection is present. If someone tests positive, it does not mean that they're infected with anything, let alone with the contagious SARS-CoV-2 virus. Even the, even the United States CDC, even this institution says, agrees with this, and I quote directly from page 38 of one of its publications on the coronavirus and the PCR tests dated July 13th, 2020. First bullet point says, detection of viral RNA may not indicate the presence of infectious virus or that 2019 NCOV is the causative agent for clinical symptoms. Second bullet point says, the performance of this test has not been established for monitoring treatment of 2019 NCOV infection. Third bullet point says, this test cannot rule out diseases caused by other bacterial or viral pathogens. It is still not clear whether there has ever been a scientifically correct isolation of the Wuhan virus so that nobody knows exactly what we're looking for when we test especially since this virus, just like the flu viruses, mutates quickly. The PCR swaps take one or two sequences of a molecule that are invisible to the human eye and therefore need to be amplified in many cycles to make it visible. Everything over 35 cycles is, as reported by the New York Times and others, considered completely unreliable and scientifically unjustifiable. However, the Dresden test, as well as the WHO-recommended tests that followed his example, are set to 45 cycles. Can that be because of the desire to produce as many positive results possible, as possible and thereby provide the basis for the false assumption that a large number of infections have been detected? The test cannot distinguish inactive and reproductive matter. That means that a positive result may happen because the test detects, for example, a piece of debris, a fragment of a molecule which may signal nothing else than that the immune system of the person tested won a battle with a common cold in the past. Even Drosten himself declared in an interview with a German business magazine in 2014, at that time concerning the alleged uh, detection of an infection with the MERS virus, allegedly with the help of the PCR test, that these PCR tests are so highly sensitive that even very healthy and non-infectious people may test positive. At that time, he also became very much aware of the powerful role of the panic and fear-mongering media, as you'll see at the end of the following quote. He said then, in this interview, if, for example, such a pathogen scurries over the nasal mucosa of a nurse for a day or so without her getting sick or noticing anything, then she's suddenly a MERS case. This could also explain the explosion of case numbers in Saudi Arabia. In addition, the media there have made this into an incredible sensation. Has he forgotten this, or is he deliberately concealing this in the corona context, because corona is a very lucrative business opportunity for the pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical industry as a whole, and for Mr. Alfred Lund, his co-author in many studies and also a PCR test producer. In my view, it is completely implausible that he forgot in 2020 what he knew about the PCR tests and told a business magazine in 2014. In short, this test cannot detect any infection, contrary to all false claims sta stating that it can. 
An infection, a so-called hot infection, requires, requires that the virus, or rather a fragment of a molecule, which may be a virus, is not just found somewhere, for example, in the throat of a person without causing any damage, that would be a cold infection. Rather, a hot infection requires that the virus penetrates into the cells, replicates there, and causes symptoms such as headaches or a sore throat. Only then is a person really infected in the sense of a hot, sense of a hot infection. Uh, because only then is a person contagious, that is, able to infect others. Until then, it is completely harmless for both the host and all other people that the host comes into contact with. Once again, this means that positive test results, contrary to all other claims by Drosten Wheeler or the WHO, mean nothing with respect to infections, as even the CDC knows, as quoted above. Meanwhile, a number of highly respected scientists worldwide assume that there has never been a corona pandemic, but only a PCR test pandemic. This is the conclusion reached by many German scientists, such as Professors Bakhti, Reis, Mölling, Hockertz, Wallach, and many others, including the above-mentioned Professor John Ioannidis and the Nobel laureate Professor Michael Levitt from Stanford University. The most recent such opinion is that of the aforementioned Dr. Mike Yeadon, a former vice president and chief science officer at Pfizer, who held this position for 16 years. He and his co-authors, all well-known scientists, published a scientific paper in September of 2020, and he wrote a corresponding magazine article on September 20th, 2020. Among other things, he and they state, and I quote, we're basing our government policy, our e economic policy, and the policy of restricting fundamental rights presumably on completely wrong data and assumptions about the coronavirus. If it weren't for the test results that are constantly reported in the media, the pandemic would be over because nothing really happened. Of course, there are some serious individual cases of illness, but there are also some in every flu epidemic. There was a real wave of disease in March and April, but since then, everything has gone back to normal. Only the positive results rise and sink wildly again and again, depending on how many tests are carried out. But the real cases of illnesses are over. There can, there can be no talk of a second wave. The allegedly new strain of the coronavirus is, Dr. Yeadon continues, only new in that it is a new type of the long-known coronavirus. There are at least four coronaviruses that are endemic and cause some of the common colds we experience, especially in winter. They all have a striking sequence similarity to the coronavirus. And because the human immune system recognizes the similarity to the virus that has now allegedly been newly discovered, a T-cell immunity has long existed in this respect. 30% of the population had this before the allegedly new virus even appeared. Therefore, it is sufficient for the so-called herd immunity that 